Hey, my name is Zach. I'm the lead pastor here at Restore. Thanks so much for checking out this week's message. Uh, I hope that it's encouraging to you and inspiring to you. I hope that it causes you to dive deeper into the scriptures. And I hope that you're able to do that with some people around you, with some community. Um, but if you don't have that, we would love to invite you into the community here at Restore. If you want to take a next step, get more connected, you can just go to restoreaustin.org slash connect, fill out a card on there, and I will personally reach out to you in the days after you do that. And if you want to grab coffee with me or just get more information about the church, I will make myself available to you for that. As you will hear, we are in this thing called a year around the table, and it really comes from this vision that God's given us that Restore would be a place where anyone has a seat at the table and everyone experiences the extravagant love of Jesus. So A, I hope that you experience the extravagant love of Jesus as you check this message out. And B, if you don't have a table to sit at, we want to invite you to Jesus' table here at Restore. In 1967, at the height of the civil rights movement, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. rented a house in Jamaica with no telephone in order to kind of isolate himself and write his fourth book. The book is called, Where Do We Go From Here? Chaos or Community? And it would end up being his final book because the very next year in 1968 is when he was assassinated. Now, it's, it's hard to imagine for those who are a little bit younger or don't have a, a clear picture of that time in American history, but Dr. King is not well-liked at this point in his life, like at all. In 1967, he spoke out against the violence and injustice of the Vietnam War, which cost him key allies in powerful places. People like President Lyndon B. Johnson and the New York Times editorial board all kind of turned against him. And then in 1968, the year of his death, 75% of Americans disapproved of his views and actions. <laughs> Three out of four Americans in 68 disapproved of Dr. King. He was hated. I've spoken to folks who were in public places when the news of his murder came out. People cheered. I mean, like, I know it's hard to fathom now. This was a different time. The assassination was really just the last in a long series of violent attacks against Dr. King and his family. I think he knew that he only had a short time left, which is why he rented that house in Jamaica and penned what I believe is not only his most important work, but one of the most important books ever written. You should really get a copy for yourself and read the whole thing. I'm telling you, like a life-changing, game-changing book. But today, I want to start the message by sharing some excerpts from it with you all, especially from the last chapter, in which Dr. King paints a picture of what life could be like if we put that famous scripture passage from Micah 6.8 into practice, a community where we, we do justice, where we love mercy, and where we walk humbly alongside our brothers and sisters. The chapter is called The World House, and here's what he says. We have inherited a large house, a great world house, in which we have to live together. Black and white, Eastern and Westerner, Gentile and Jew, Catholic and Protestant, Muslim and Hindu, a family unduly separated in ideas, culture, and interest who, because we can never live apart again, must somehow learn to live with each other in peace. All inhabitants of the globe are now neighbors. This worldwide neighborhood has been brought into being largely as a result of the modern scientific and technological revolutions. 
One of the great liabilities of history is that all too many people fail to remain awake through great periods of social change. That is a very important sentence. I'm going to read it again. One of the great liabilities of history is that all too many people fail to remain awake through periods of great social change. Every society has its protectors of the status quo and its fraternities of indifferent who are notorious for sleeping through revolutions. But today, our very survival depends on our ability to stay awake, to adjust to new ideas, to remain vigilant, and to face the challenge of change. The large house in which we live demands that we transform this worldwide neighborhood into a worldwide brotherhood. Together, we must learn to live as brothers, or together, we will be forced to perish as fools. We must work passionately to bridge the gulf between our scientific progress and our moral progress. One of the great problems of mankind is that we suffer from a poverty of spirit, which stands in glaring contrast to our scientific and technological abundance. The richer we have become materially, the poorer we have become morally and spiritually. When scientific power outruns moral power, we end up with guided missiles and misguided men. When we foolishly minimize the internal lives, internal of our lives, and maximize the external, we sign the warrant for our day of doom. Our hope for creative living in this world house that we have inherited lies in our ability to reestablish the moral ends of our lives in personal character and in social justice. Deeply woven into the fiber of our religious traditions is the conviction that humans are made in the image of God and that they are souls of infinite metaphysical value. If we accept this as a profound moral fact, we cannot be content to see men hungry, to see them victimized with ill health when we have the means to help them. We are inevitably our brother's keeper because we are our brother's brother. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. This call for worldwide fellowship that lifts neighborly concern beyond one's tribe, race, class, and nation is in reality a call for an all-embracing, unconditional love for humanity, which is beautifully summed up in the first epistle of St. John's, which he then quotes, Let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. And if we love one another, God dwelleth in us, and his love is perfected in us. And then he concludes with this. Let us hope that this spirit will become the order of the day. Because justice, at its best, is love correcting everything that stands against love. I think about that last line a lot. That justice is love correcting everything that stands against love. Cornell West says it like this, justice is what love looks like in public. Justice is love in action, correcting everything that gets in the way of love. Or let me put it another way. Do you remember when they asked Jesus what the most important thing in the world was? Do you remember what he said? Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. So if justice is correcting everything that stands against love, then justice is correcting everything that stands against what Jesus said is the most important thing in the world. Justice is correcting everything that stands against God and his plan for humanity. When we understand that, 
it makes perfect sense that justice would be a central theme throughout the biblical story. Talked about hundreds of times throughout both the Old and New Testaments. It also makes sense that the prophet Isaiah would say this, the Lord is a God of justice. The Lord is a God of justice. Because if God's desire for humanity is that we all experience abundant love and injustice is anything that gets in the way of that love, then of course our God is a God of justice. This is why today we're launching a new teaching series called God of Justice. Over the next few weeks, we'll look at how the theme of justice weaves its way through the entire biblical story and just how important it is to the heart of God. But before we jump in, I need to pause and remind us that we're in the middle of something we're calling our year around the table. We're calling it that because our vision here at Restore is to be a place where anyone has a seat at the table and everyone experiences the extravagant love of Jesus. So back in August, we kicked off this year as a way to focus our attention on kind of walking through what does it look like to embody that vision, both as individuals and as a collective church family. So to do that, we've been looking at these things, these, these six measures or markers of what someone's life looks like when they are seated at Jesus' table and doing everything they can to follow him. Here they are. I depend on Jesus. I'm a part of the family. I live invitationally. I look for ways to be generous. I pursue justice for the marginalized, and I include everyone. Over the last five months, we've worked through different teaching series centered around being a part of the family, living invitationally, and then we just finished one about what it means to look for ways to be generous. That was that money series I was talking about earlier. If you missed any of those, they're online, YouTube, Vimeo. Um, we live stream all this stuff on Facebook. We've got a podcast. You can listen and catch up on those anywhere. But since all the way back to summer of 2021, when we were planning this year, I've been so excited about this series in particular. Not only because Jesus-centered justice is central to God's mission, but because we are living in a cultural moment where the concept of justice is under attack, especially by people who claim to be Christians. Just turn on the Christian television stations, look at Christian social media, listen to prominent pastors. It won't be long before you hear the term justice being decried. People use terms like social justice warrior or woke pejoratively to shame people into not pursuing justice. As historian and author Jamar Tisby says, many white Christians have become de facto defenders of an unjust status quo by maintaining that Christians should not get involved in matters of public justice. Now, a few years ago, I would have said, this makes no sense to me. Why would people do this? Why, why, why would people make fun of social justice? Why, why, why would people take woke away from the black community and change it into something negative to shame people who do justice? I, it, it, a few years ago, I'd have been like, this makes no sense to me. Why would anybody be against justice? But after spending the last few years really learning from Christians of color who have been leading in justice movements for decades, I've come to understand that this is all very purposeful many times. You see, if someone receives money, power, or political gain from injustice, then demonizing justice is the most effective way to ensure the perpetuation of those benefits. That's why it's such a red flag when people say it's divisive to talk about racism or sexism or nationalism or any other forms of injustice. Because listen, justice is only divisive to someone benefiting from injustice. Or to put it more bluntly, 
The only people standing against justice are the ones who profit off of injustice. The only people standing against justice are the people profiting off of injustice. But there's another side to this coin as well. We can't slap Jesus' name on any old revolution and claim that it represents God's will or God's justice. This has happened throughout human history, and the results have been devastating. You see, people have often weaponized justice and co-opted the name of Christ for their own purposes of power and oppression. In both scenarios, the goal is power for the sake of selfish gain, either by demonizing justice to maintain it or by weaponizing justice to gain it. But neither of those represent the true justice of God. Because here's the really important thing about God's justice. In a culture where justice is almost always retributive and punishing, God's justice is restorative and liberating. As the theologian N.T. Wright says, God's justice is saving, healing, restorative justice because the God to whom justice belongs is the creator God who is yet to complete his original plan for creation and whose justice is designed not simply to restore the balance to a world out of kilter, but to bring glorious completion and fruition the creation, teeming with life and possibility that he made in the first place. One of the founders of liberation theology, Leonardo Boff, talks about how God desires justice for all people, not just some people, all people, both including both the oppressed and oppressor. He says this, God flings the proud of heart to earth in hope that they will be delivered from their ridiculous vaunting and flaunting to become free and obedient children of God and brothers and sisters to others. I love that. The goal of God's justice is always full restoration for everyone. Martin Luther King Jr. understood this. That's why he talks so much about this world house in which we all dwell being a place of, of love and goodness and abundance and equality, not just for some people, but for all people. Dr. King famously called this idea the beloved community. The beloved community. And he said it was the end goal of all justice work. Based on the biblical concept of shalom or peace, the beloved community is a place where there is abundant goodness in all things and between all things. And for Dr. King and so many who came before him and continue his work today, the goal has never been power for the sake of power or even justice for the sake of justice. The goal has always been the beloved community where God and all of humanity coexist in love. In a 1966 article for Christian Century magazine, Dr. King wrote this, I do not think of political power as an end. Neither do I think of economic power as an end. They are ingredients in the objective that we seek in life. And I think that the end of that objective is a truly brotherly society, the creation of the beloved community. Y'all, God desires for all people to experience freedom and fullness of life. And it's for that very reason that God never turns a blind eye to injustice of any kind. God does not stand in the uncontroversial middle. When a line is drawn, God is on the side of the marginalized. He stands in solidarity with the oppressed, but he invites all of us, oppressors included, to join him there. 
But at the same time, as I said, God will not be mocked. He will not stand idly by as his name is attached to violent revolutions in which justice is weaponized for the sake of oppressive power. Thing is, too, these are not political statements. These are biblical truths attested to by Scripture passages from Genesis to Revelation. And they are also not incongruent with one another. I really want us to get this. Justice is not something to be demonized or weaponized. It's not something to be demonized or weaponized. Justice is the means by which God brings restoration and freedom and shalom to all people. All people. As Isaiah said, our God is a God of justice. And to illustrate just how prevalent this subject is throughout all of Scripture, I want to show you, yes, another video from our friends at the Bible Project on the theme of justice. I know I show you all, all these all the time, but they're so good, it's not my fault. So, check this out. If you were a praying mantis, it would be socially acceptable to devour your mate. And if you're a honey badger, you have no regard for other animals. You don't care. If you're a panda with twins, it's normal to abandon one to take care of the other. But if humans do any of these things, we would call it wrong, unfair, or unjust. Yeah, why is that? Why do humans care so much about justice? Well, the Bible has a fascinating response to that question. On page one, humans are set apart from all other creatures as the image of God. Yeah, God's representatives who rule the world by his definition of good and evil. And this identity, it's the bedrock of the Bible's view of justice. All humans are equal before God and have the right to be treated with dignity and fairness no matter who you are. And that would be nice if we all did that, but we know how the world really works. And the Bible addresses that too. It shows how we are constantly redefining good and evil to our own advantage at the expense of others. Yeah, self-preservation. And the weaker someone is, the easier it is to take advantage of them. And so in the biblical story, we see this happening on a personal level, but also in families and then in communities and in whole civilizations that create injustice, especially towards the vulnerable. But the story doesn't end there. Out of this whole mess, God chose a man named Abraham to start a new kind of family. Specifically, Abraham was to teach his family to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. Yeah, doing righteousness, that's a Bible word I don't really use, but what comes to mind is being a good person. But what does that even mean, being good? The biblical Hebrew word for righteousness is tzedakah, and it's more specific. It's an ethical standard that refers to right relationships between people. It's about treating others as the image of God. With the God-given dignity they deserve. And this word justice, it's the Hebrew word mishpat. It can refer to retributive justice. Like if I steal something, I pay the consequences. Exactly. Yet most often in the Bible, mishpat refers to restorative justice. It means going a step further, actually seeking out vulnerable people who are being taken advantage of and helping them. Yeah, some people call this charity. But mishpat involves way more. It means taking steps to advocate for the vulnerable and changing social structures to prevent injustice. So justice and righteousness are about a radical, selfless way of life. Yeah, and you find this idea all over the Bible. Like, here, in the book of Proverbs, what does it mean to bring about just righteousness? Open your mouth for those who can't speak for themselves. And what do these words mean for the prophets, like Jeremiah? 
rescue the disadvantaged, and don't tolerate oppression or violence against the immigrant, the orphan, and the widow. And like here, look in the book of Psalms. The Lord God upholds justice for the oppressed, gives food to the hungry, and sets the prisoner free. But he thwarts the way of the wicked. Whoa, he thwarts the wicked? Yeah, in Hebrew, the word wicked is rasha. It means guilty or in the wrong. It refers to someone who mistreats another human, ignoring their dignity as an image of God. So justice and righteousness is a big deal to God. Yes, it's what Abraham's family, the Israelites, were to be all about. They ended up as immigrant slaves being oppressed unjustly in Egypt. And so God confronted Egypt's evil, declaring them to be rasha, guilty of injustice. And so he rescued Israel. But the tragic irony of the Old Testament story is that these redeemed people went on to commit the same acts of injustice against the vulnerable. And so God sent prophets who declared Israel guilty. But they weren't the only ones. There's injustice everywhere. Yeah, some people actively perpetrate injustice. Others receive benefits or privileges from unjust social structures they take for granted. And sadly, history has shown that when the oppressed gain power, they often become oppressors themselves. So we all participate in injustice, actively or passively, even unintentionally. We're all the guilty ones. And so this is the surprising message of the biblical story. God's response to humanity's legacy of injustice is to give us a gift, the life of Jesus. He did righteousness and justice, and yet he died on behalf of the guilty. But then God declared Jesus to be the righteous one when he rose from the dead. And so now Jesus offers his life to the guilty so that they too can be declared righteous before God, not because of anything they've done, but because of what Jesus did for them. The earliest followers of Jesus experienced this righteousness from God, not just as a new status, but as a power that changed their lives and compelled them to act in surprising new ways. Yeah, if God declared someone righteous when they didn't deserve it, the only reasonable response is to go and seek righteousness and justice for others. This is a radical way of life, and it's not always convenient or easy. It's courageously making other people's problems my problems. This is what Jesus meant by loving your neighbor as yourself. It's about a lifetime commitment fueled by the words of the ancient prophet Micah. God has told you, humans, what is good and what the Lord requires of you is to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. I hope that's helpful. Um, I just I think that video is so good. Um, I love that picture of when we're filled by the Holy Spirit and empowered to do God's justice, we start seeing other people's problems as our problems too. We stand in the gap, advocate. Similar to that video, we're going to spend the next four weeks exploring this idea of God's justice throughout the story of Scripture. We'll talk about God's justice to the people of Israel in the Old Testament, specifically Moses and that story. We'll talk about Jesus both teaching and demonstrating God's justice, and then we'll also talk about how the early church carried God's justice forward as the first Christian community. There are also so many Jesus-centered justice movements throughout history, and we're going to touch on a bunch of those over the next four weeks as well, just like today we did with the Civil Rights Movement. But with our last couple of minutes today, 
I want to talk about the biblical and theological foundation for all justice work, something called the Imago Dei. How many of you have ever heard that term, Imago Dei? So Imago Dei is a Latin phrase that simply means image of God. And as Tim just said in the video, this identity is the bedrock of the Bible's view of justice. All humans are equal before God and have the right to be treated with dignity and fairness no matter who you are. The Imago Dei is first found on the opening page of the Bible. Genesis 1, starting in verse 26, God said, Let us make man in our image and after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and govern it, have dominion over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and all the animals that scurry along the ground. Two things to point out here. First, humanity is made in God's image. Second, humanity is tasked by God with governing creation, the rest of the earth. This is God's design for his perfect world. But as you know, or at least saw in that video, this world was broken by humanity's continued choices to turn our backs on God's design and to pursue our own way. So the goal of all Jesus-centered justice should focus on making God's original design for creation come alive again. In that vein, the Imago Dei comes with two vital implications for how Christians should understand and pursue justice. Let's start with the first one. Number one, injustice is not only an attack on humanity, it is an attack on God. Injustice is not only an attack on humanity, it is an attack on God. Because each and every human being fully bears the image of God. Not some of us more than others, all of us fully. There is no distinction or hierarchy. This is why God is so vehemently against idols throughout Scripture. You see, idols are physical representations of spiritual beings, and no statue or sculpture can truly bear God's image because humanity already does. We aren't supposed to make images of God because we are images of God. And this image didn't go away after sin broke God's perfect world during the fall in Genesis 3. Humanity continues to be called the image of God throughout both the Old and New Testaments. Like C.S. Lewis famously said, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilization, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Understanding that humans are immortal image bearers of God should drastically change the way we treat people. Like, drastically change. It should also ignite our fire for justice. Because as I said a second ago, injustice is not only an attack on humanity, it is an attack on God too. No one illustrates this truth better, in my opinion, than Lisa Sharon Harper in her phenomenal book called A Very Good Gospel. Here's what she says. All humanity is made in the image of God. To slap another human is to slap the image of God. To lie to another human is to lie to the image of God. To exploit another human is to exploit the image of God. To kill another human is to kill the image of God. To declare war on another human or ethnic group or religion or nation is to declare war on the image of God. In essence, 
to commit acts of physical, emotional, psychological, sexual, political, and economic violence against fellow humans is an attempt to crush the image of God on earth. Likewise, to exploit or harm or overconsume the rest of creation is to abdicate our human vocation, to steward creation. If we engage in such acts, we turn our back on God's way to peace and by extension on God himself. Y'all, we must make a choice to see each and every person we interact with as bearers of the divine fingerprint, as the very image of God, so that we will treat them with the love and care they deserve. That's the first implication of the Imago Dei. Here's the second one. As representatives of the God of justice, humanity is called to pursue justice. As representatives of the God who is justice, we are called to pursue it too. We are the body of Christ, incarnating the work of Jesus here on earth, working alongside God and empowered by the Holy Spirit to bring restoration to the brokenness. And so much of the brokenness and marginalization in our world is caused by a perversion of God's assignment to humanity back in Genesis 1. Remember what he told Adam and Eve? Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and govern it, and have what? Dominion over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. See, God gave every human the right and privilege to exercise dominion, not over one another, this is key, but over the rest of creation. The word picture God gives in Genesis 2 for this dominion is gardening. We are called to cultivate the earth and everything in it so that it can reach its full potential. But here's the thing. Far too often we have twisted dominion for everyone into domination for a few. As we saw in the Bible Project video, instead of recognizing that everyone deserves liberty, some people have subjugated others for the purpose of power. We have traded dominion for domination. We've also traded cultivation for control. Because instead of cultivating our world so that everyone and everything can blossom into what God intended, we have tried to control people and exploit the earth's resources for our own selfish gain. So pursuing justice means bringing back dominion and cultivation where domination and control have reigned. And because God is a God of justice, one of the primary ways we bear his image on earth is by pursuing this kind of justice. Now, I want to say one final thing before the band comes back up and leads us in a final song of response. Listen, I I know a lot of y'all. I know most of y'all. I know that most of you are very committed to pursuing justice for the marginalized. You see just how important justice is to God and how he's called us to partner with him in this work. But I also know that most of us, we're not satisfied with our current engagement with justice work. We want to do more. And I know this because back in the fall, we did a church-wide survey that centered around those six measures I was talking about earlier. And when we asked questions about this measure, 75% of you said you'd like to step up your involvement when it comes to pursuing justice for the marginalized. Three out of four said, I want to do more when it comes to justice. And when we asked what keeps you from it, almost half of you said, quote, that you were overwhelmed by the amount of injustice in the world. feel that. I get that. I often feel overwhelmed by the amount of injustice in the world. 
And I think through the modernization of various kinds of media and social media and prevalence of those things, we are more aware of the brokenness and injustice in our world than anybody has ever been the scope of human history. But feeling overwhelmed and grieved doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with you. It just means that you're paying attention. You're seeing it. And honestly, I don't think humans were designed to take in this much information, especially this much pain and injustice and oppression. But the solution isn't to just stick our heads in the sand, pretend everything's fine. Even the ability to do that comes from a place of privilege. So what do we do? Well, as always, we don't want to just talk about these things here at Restore. We want to be about them, too. And that's why just last week we did a whole church-wide field trip out to Community First Village to see how we can be more involved with helping folks who are chronically homeless and disabled. And our hope is that this series and the ongoing opportunities to serve alongside our community partners help each of us figure out how God has equipped and called us to participate in this justice work. Because you can't do everything. You can't. But you can do something. You can't do everything, but you can do something. And over the next four weeks, we'll look at various individuals and groups throughout the Bible, how they partnered with God in the work of justice. And I'm telling you, you'll see it looks different for everyone in every situation. But no matter who you are or where you find yourself in life right now, God has called you to be a part of this justice work. And thankfully, we don't have to do it alone. We have the the spirit of Jesus and our church family with us always. So we're going to finish this morning by singing one of my favorite songs. It's called So Will I. And it talks about how each of us were made in God's image, about how deeply he loves all people. And then the very last verse ends with these lines. It says, I can see your heart eight billion different ways. Every precious one, a child you died to save. If you gave your life to love them, so will I. I want that to be kind of our our cry, our call this morning, our joint prayer as we leave this place and go out to a world that has an extreme amount of injustice and brokenness in it. That we will see the eight billion people the same way that Jesus sees them as people made in his image and worth dying for. And that if he gave his life to love them, that we can too. Let me pray. God, I thank you so much that you are a God of justice, that you do not sit idly by as injustice happens, that you enter into the world and you did enter into the world in the most beautiful and amazing and sacrificial way. And you gave each of us the ability through the work and life and resurrection of Jesus to participate in your justice work. So I pray, God, that you would move in our hearts right now, but as we leave this place too, and that you would point our eyes in directions where injustice is happening and where you would call us to step in and make a difference. Empower us by your spirit to do that. God, we know we can't do everything. We know we're overwhelmed. We know it's too much, but we know that it's not too much for you. 
And we know that even if we can't do everything, we can do something. So I pray you would show us what that something is. And empower us by your spirit to step out in faith and do it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.